Section 22 of The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Irma Martin. The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. Part 1, Book the Second, Chapter 12, Face to Face with the Rock. The wretched people in distress on board the Matutina understood at once the mysterious derision which mocked their shipwreck. The appearance of the lighthouse raised their spirits at first, then overwhelmed them. Nothing could be done, nothing attempted. What has been said of kings we may say of the waves. We are their people, we are their prey. All that they rave must be borne. The Nor'wester was driving the hooker on the caskets. They were nearing them. No evasion was possible. They drifted rapidly towards the reef. They felt that they were getting into shallow waters. The lead, if they could have thrown it to any purpose, would not have shown more than three or four fathoms. The shipwrecked people heard the dull sound of the waves being sucked within the submarine caves of the steep rock. They made out, under the lighthouse, like a dark cutting between two plates of granite, the narrow passage of the ugly, wild-looking little harbor, supposed to be full of the skeletons of men and carcasses of ships. It looked like the mouth of a cavern, rather than the entrance of a port. They could hear the crackling of the pile on high within the iron grating. A ghastly purple illuminated the storm. The collision of the rain and hail disturbed the mist. The black cloud and the red flame fought, serpent against serpent, Live ashes, reft by the wind, flew from the fire, and the sudden assaults of the sparks seemed to drive the snowflakes before them. The breakers, blurred at first in outline, now stood out in bold relief, a medley of rocks with peaks, crests, and vertebrae. The angles were formed by strongly marked red lines, and the inclined planes in blood-like streams of light. As they neared it, the outline of the reefs increased and rose, sinister. One of the women, the Irish woman, told her beads wildly. In place of the skipper, who was the pilot, remained the chief, who was the captain. The Basques all know the mountain and the sea. They are bold on the precipice and inventive in catastrophes. They neared the cliff. They were about to strike. Suddenly they were so close to the great north rock of the caskets that it shut out the lighthouse from them. They saw nothing but the rock and the red light behind it. The huge rock looming in the mist was like the gigantic black woman with a hood of fire. That ill-famed rock is called the Biblet. It faces the north side the reef, which on the south is faced by another ridge, Le Etac à Guilme. The chief looked at the Biblet and shouted, A man with the will to take a rope to the rock! Who can swim? No answer. No one on board knew how to swim, not even the sailors an ignorance not uncommon among seafaring people. A beam, nearly free of its lashings, was swinging loose. The chief clasped it with both hands, crying, Help me! They unleashed the beam. They had now at their disposal the very thing they wanted. From the defensive, they assumed the offensive. It was a longish beam of heart of oak, sound and strong, useful either as a support or as an engine of attack. A lever for a burden, a ram against a tower. Ready! shouted the chief. All six, getting foothold on the stump of the mast, 
threw their weight on the spar projecting over the side, straight as a lance towards a projection of the cliff. It was a dangerous maneuver. To strike at a mountain is audacity indeed. The six men might have well been thrown into the water by the shock. There is variety in struggles with storms. After the hurricane, the shoal. After the wind, the rock. First the intangible, then the immovable, to be encountered. Some minutes passed, such minutes as whiten men's hair. The rock and the vessel were about to come in collision. The rock, like a culprit, awaited the blow. A resistless wave rushed in. It ended the respite. It caught the vessel underneath, raised it, and swayed it for an instant as the sling swings its projectile. Steady! cried the chief. It is only a rock, and we are men. The beam was couched. The six men were one with it. Its sharp bolts tore their armpits, but they did not feel them. The wave dashed the hooker against the rock. Then came the shock. It came under the shapeless cloud of foam which always hides such catastrophes. When this cloud fell back into the sea, when the waves rolled back from the rock, the six men were tossing about the deck, but the Matutina was floating alongside the rock, clear of it. The beam had stood and turned the vessel. The sea was running so fast that in a few seconds she had left the caskets behind. Such things sometimes occur. It was a straight stroke of the bowsprit that saved wood of Largo with the mouth of the Tay. In the wild neighborhood of Cape Winterton, and under the command of Captain Hamilton, it was the appliance of such a lever against the dangerous rock, Branodoum, that saved the Royal Mary from shipwreck, although she was but a Scotch-built frigate. The force of the waves can be so abruptly discomposed that changes of direction can be easily managed or at least are possible even in the most violent collisions. There is a brute in the tempest. The hurricane is a bull and can be turned. The whole secret of avoiding shipwreck is to try and pass from the secant to the tangent. Such was the service rendered by the beam to the vessel. It had done the work of an oar, had taken the place of a rudder, but the maneuver once performed could not be repeated. The beam was overboard, the shock of the collision, had wrenched it out of the men's hands, and it was lost in the waves. To loosen another beam would have been to dislocate the hull. The hurricane carried off the Matutina. Presently, the caskets showed as a harmless encumbrance on the horizon. Nothing looks more out of the countenance than a reef of rocks under such circumstances. There are in nature, in its obscure aspects, in which the visible blends with the invisible, certain motionless, surly profiles which seem to express that a prey has escaped. Thus glowered the caskets while the Matutina fled. The lighthouse paled in distance, faded and disappeared. There was something mournful in its extinction. Layers of mist sank down upon the now uncertain light. Its rays died in the waste of waters. The flame floated, struggled, sank, and lost its form. It might have been a drowning creature. The brazier dwindled to the snuff of a candle, then nothing, more but a weak, uncertain flutter. Around it spread a circle of extravasated glimmer. It was like the quenching of light in the pit of night. The bell which had threatened was dumb. The lighthouse which had threatened had melted away. 
and yet it was more awful now that they had ceased to threaten. One was a voice, the other a torch. There was something human about them. They were gone, and naught remained but the abyss. End of section 22